Okay, good evening everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 110 of Exploring the Lord of the Rings, which is pretty exciting in several ways. Um, so I'm delighted to be back with you guys tonight. Sorry I'm a little later than usual, but somebody was monkeying with my stream settings earlier today. I had to do a bunch of adjustments. Uh, I, I'm just kind of teasing my son. So today, this afternoon, uh, at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, my son Matthias did the debut episode of his new stream. He decided, uh, you know, I, it's one of those, like, it was a parental moment, you know? Like, this summer, like, I gave him a project. I'm like, I want you to accomplish something this summer. I want you to to, to, to you know, pick a project I don't care what it is. Just pick a project and do it. And um, he decided that, you know, he thought about it for a while and he came back and he's like, I want to do a stream on the Signum channel. And I was like, oh, that's not exactly what I had in mind. But I said I didn't care what it was. Uh, so, you know, I set some parameters. If he could do it, he could do it. And uh, and he did. He he he's he's done all the things. He launched it today. Um so, uh, yes, the Pokemon Discovery Project. So we now have a weekly show uh, uh, on Pokemon lore uh, in uh, on the the uh, the the Twitch uh, our, our our Twitch channel. And it was a lot of fun. I thought he did a great job. Um, and he'll be back every week Tuesdays at four thirty p.m. Eastern time. If you want to if you want to join him there, if you f subscribe to our Twitch channel, uh, you probably will have gotten uh, the ad about that uh you know the 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 notification uh when he was going live so uh anyway yeah i appreciate uh, those of you who who uh showed up and were very uh uh were very kind with him i think he i think he did well i think he did well and uh and he's already looking forward to next week i know so uh anyway that was uh that was fun, but it did, I did have to set him up on my system here, uh, so it was uh, uh, it kind of it took me a little bit longer than usual to get things uh, prepared here this evening. But anyway, um, so that was one really fun thing that happened both in the Olsen household and uh, on the Signum channel uh, here this week. So if you've ever wanted to learn about Pokemon, my son can teach you pretty much anything you need to know about Pokemon. So um, it's. Uh, uh, it's it's uh, going to be going to be pretty fun. Pokemon Discovery Project with the rambunctious Riolu. That is his that is his streamer name, the rambunctious Riolu. Um, so um, yeah, okay. Anyway, so oh yeah, I I, I <laughs> Tolkien Otaku there in the uh, uh, in the the Twitch uh, channel. Yeah, I, I've, I've heard, uh, you know, I've, I've received several lectures about Pokemon, um, you know, mythology, which I find very interesting and, and very strange, but, uh, uh, but I guess we're, we'll get there, I guess. Uh, you know, he's, uh, he's decided he's going to stream his way through the Pokemon games. He started with the early generation games, Pokemon Yellow, I believe is the one he started with. Uh, and so he's going to sort of follow it through to follow the, the sort of the development of the mythology and everything. So, <laughs> that's that's what he's doing. I'm like, okay, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> that was. Uh, I'm like, I guess, I guess I can't criticize you for coming, you know, up with a stream idea, which is like a really ambitious long term project, right? Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, cool. So, uh, other things that are going on this week, we're as I mentioned last time, we're getting closer and closer to moot season two. Um, uh, two fall 
moots are two soon our 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 nearest moots right the next regional moots that are happening on our calendar first is a new one our newest moot which is finally new england right people have been bugging me about why i don't we have not had a regional moot here in new england where i live uh, and we're finally going to have one uh it's going to be down in amherst massachusetts and it's going to be on the weekend i think it's going to be sunday the 29th so that we we'll, we'll, we don't have it on the website yet there's still some things we're ironing out but it's kind of a save the date on that one um sunday the 29th of september so yes september 29th uh so anyway that's uh we'll have uh we'll have more on that uh soon here um uh but so yeah so if you're going to be around amherst massachusetts september 29th kind of pencil that in um and uh the next one of course is Midmoot three or Middlemoot three rather our Midwest moot uh, this time back in Iowa and that's going to be on October twelfth and that one we do have up on our website already the page for that is up and the call for papers is up most more significantly uh, so people are already submitting ideas uh, for presentations and discussions and things on that day so uh, that's going to be a lot of fun Ted Naismith is joining us for that we have a uh, we have another a guest coming down so if you want to uh, meet artist Ted Naismith he's going to be coming down and speaking um at uh middlemoot this year so uh that's going to be uh, uh, uh extra fun anyway so those are our next two moots on the calendar uh and we have uh, a bunch of other uh moots that we are considering we are see lalith minute moot is kind of leading the way we haven't 100% decided on the name for it. I'm not saying that's what's holding it up, but I'm also not saying it's irrelevant either. We're, we're kind of wrangling about this a little bit. Minute Moot is one of the leading candidates, I have to admit. Uh, it's a very attractive moot name. Um, but... Um, <laughs> uh, I see a partisan weighing in on the, on the Minute Moot question in the, in, the, in the Twitch chat. This is for the New England Moot. Spiritual boulders, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so that's going to be a lot of fun. We've been, um, uh, we've been, uh, there's been some discussion. Uh, it's been, um, uh, you know, nothing is, uh, uh, firm yet, but we've been having discussions about the possibility of doing a moot in Japan, uh, this coming year, maybe in April, um, uh, Nippon moot. I don't know, but, uh, anyway, that, that, that's, uh, uh, the, uh, exciting new possibility, uh, for a moot, uh, that we're thinking about this year. See, I, Mudmore, see, Yankee moot kind of suggests itself, but I can't. I can't possibly. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm like a lifelong Red Sox fan. I can't. I can't be associated with something named Yankee. I just have a hard time with that. It's a bias. I know, but I. I just. Yeah. I can't do that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Druid's fire. That's exactly it. Um. So. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard. Um. But um. Uh. Anyway. Yeah. So. Um. Uh, those are those are fun things that are uh, that are uh, th- that are coming up. Uh, other things we have, of course, our fall courses, which start in a month, uh, just uh, uh, just over. A, yeah, this Friday. This Friday is the one month mark before our cl- our fall courses begin. So, if you are a Signum student or are thinking about auditing this semester, uh, you should definitely register, right? Uh, as uh, those of you who have registered for our courses before know, uh, registering earlier matters, right? Because uh, we organize our discussion sections, our synchronous discussion sections, uh, you know, 
uh, in advance. So the earlier you get in, the the more weight your your voice has uh, as to uh, when the discussion sessions happen. So anyway, uh, so that's definitely. And, and if you have not. Uh, if you are not yet a Signum student and you've been thinking about applying, still plenty of time to do that. Our application process is is fairly efficient. Uh, you still have plenty of time to do that here in the next month uh, before our classes start uh, uh, a month from Friday. So, um, Mad Violinist, will we be doing Mootcast for the regional moots? No, at least not for now. Uh, I'm not going to say we'll never do that, but we don't have immediate plans. Um, this is the second year in which we've uh, really, we sort of did a pilot year with a couple regional moots, um, text moot and middle moot, and then we did London moot um, two years ago. And then last year was the first time we expanded and did seven regional moots. This year we're going for eight or nine. Um, so it's, you know, kind of making sure everything happens uh, uh, is still sort of the priority. And I'm not really sure. I'm not, I'm not 100% sold on whether or not Mootcast would be as good a thing for the regionals as it is for Mythmoot. But, you know, it's something I'm open to thinking more about down the road. But for now, we're definitely not going to complicate things with that extra layer of planning uh, this year. Um, yeah, cool. So, um, uh Good. Anyway, so yeah, other... Th uh, yeah, no, that was it. That was what I was... Uh, those were my announcements for this week. Okay. All right. Um, excellent. Yeah. Um, all right. So, this evening, we are going to get back to Glowin and Frodo's conversation with Glowin. Um uh, I called this class the unwritten sequel because hearing from Glowen about all of the things that have happened, you know, in the Erebor region and sort of the continuing story of really everything from, from Bjorn and the Bjornings up through the Lonely Mountain, um, it's interesting because this is, of course, all sequel material that Tolkien didn't write, right? To some extent, he, incor he ends up incorporating it into this story. Um, but, you know, he doesn't he doesn't write this story. Now, yeah, this is not an unwritten sequel in the sense that, you know, The Lord of the Rings failed to kind of be a, a sequel, at least not a normal sequel, to The Hobbit, right? I mean, he decided to go in a different direction with it entirely. We got Bilbo's trip to the Lonely Mountain and back, uh, and we get, you know, when he goes to write a sequel, he's just going to write either The Further Adventures of Bilbo or the adventures of another Hobbit like Bilbo, like his son or his uh, or his nephew, as it turns out. Um he never was going to just, he, you know, he was never going to sit down and write the sequel for what happened in, you know, to the other characters in the story and to this whole world that he began to discover. And in some ways, I think this shows as clearly as almost anything else, actually, the way in which Tolkien's whole mindset shifted um, from The Hobbit to The Lord of the Rings. What I mean by that is... And this is something that's always really hard to, at first to kind of wrap your mind around. The way in which The Hobbit was designed not only just to be a kind of a one-shot story, but the way it's this isolated world 
we associate Tolkien so firmly with meticulous world building, right? I mean, almost all Tolkien fans. I mean, if you ask a Tolkien fan, what are the what, what makes Tolkien great as a writer, right? I mean, one of the top things almost every Tolkien fan is going to say is about how how uh, you know beautifully developed the world is, right? How you know Middle Earth just feels like a real place that you can go and live in, and a lot of people wish they could, right? Um, it's one of the reasons so many of us like Lotro so much, right? Um, and that, that's absolutely true. Not uh, not uh, contesting that. But the hard thing to wrap your mind around is that that's not The Hobbit. The Hobbit was, wasn't that at all. It wasn't a Middle-earth book. But more importantly, it wasn't that kind of book at all. The whole map, right? He never did the map. It's just a... It's a, you know, the story goes here, and he came up with adventures for Bilbo along the way, and he put those adventures on a map, right? You know, he made a map that would fit those adventures. And what's south of that line, right? What's north of the, Very little, right? We know, we know, we know very, um, uh, we know very little um, about, you know, what... Uh, the rest of that world. He just, it's, you know, this kind of story, you know, the kind of story where he's going to be like, you know, okay, so the descendants of Bjorn, what happened with them? And, you know, uh, that, what you know, how does the kingdom of Bard develop? And some of the things that we hear about in this conversation with Glowen today, when he, when he was, you know, sitting down to do a sequel to The Hobbit, that stuff is not on the radar screen, right? We get a little bit of, of, of later on, in at the end of the Hobbit, right when Balin comes to visit in the very last chapter of the Hobbit, I'm not saying he totally drops the story, but of course, even there, that's more just to close the loop on Bilbo's own story, right? As what he takes from that story is really kind of relevant to himself and leads up to Gandalf's comment uh, to uh, Bilbo, which ends the book, right? The comment about. Um, you know, how he's a very fine person and Gandalf is very fond of him, but he's only a little fellow in the wide world after all, right? Um, so it's important to see, for him to see... That, anyway, I'm not going to get all sidetracked and lecturing about the end of The Hobbit, but the point is, the, he was not writing the kind of story in which he invests fully in every element of this. But, of course, The Hobbit gets adopted into this world that he does go on to develop. And because, of course, the whole thing, he's fusing sort of backwards onto the world that he had spent a great deal of time uh, world-building and investing in. And that is, of course, the world of the first stage. So, one of the things that I think is really interesting about this conversation with Frodo, uh, with Frodo and Glowen, is merely the fact that here we we can see Tolkien investing, you know, some imagination, some of that that world building power in doing the thing that he never did, that he never really contemplated doing when he sat down to write a sequel. Right. So it, th- this is one of those passages which kind of I was going to say reminds me, but that's not exactly it's not exactly like I forget, which really sort of shows and demonstrates uh, what a different mindset Tolkien is in, what a different world we're living in now, right? As he's, uh, as he's doing this kind of, this kind of development, this kind of world building. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good, good. Yeah, Tony says, and that's why the origin of hobbits is so mysterious. They didn't really belong in the Silmarillion world. No, exactly. Of all the things in the hobbit, hobbits themselves are really 
one of the only things which just kind of emerged right totally independently uh, of that of that earlier tradition. I mean, almost everything else that uh, Tolkien did, right? Most everything else that Tolkien uh, described or whatever um, were in. Uh, uh, you know, had some kind of analog or root, right, in his earlier stuff, right? But not hobbits, not hobbits themselves. Absolutely. Um, yeah, good. Okay, let's see. Um, two comments from the discussion boards before we get back into the text. We want to be hasty about that. Um, yeah, oh, hang on. So, Lilith says, could we say that Tolkien didn't write the origin of hobbits because he didn't know where they came from in his own imagination? Well, yeah, in a sense. I mean, he... he. First of all, there's always... Tolkien always talks like he's discovering things instead of making them up, right? I mean, he, 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 he almost never sat down to be like, okay, I'm going to... I'm going to invent stuff now. It's, it's it's never how he talked about it anyway. Whenever you hear him talking about his story, talking about his ideas, he has to find it out. He doesn't have to. He doesn't. He doesn't invent it, right? Um, so yeah, he never. He never. He never learned. He never found out exactly where hobbits came from, right? They're a mystery to him, and he's fine with that. Uh, and it's it's actually you know another really interesting thing. Sometimes. People and I've said things like this too before that you know that to- personality-wise, Tolkien was kind of. Uh, I, I've done this before, especially in contrasting him with C.S. Lewis. You know, C.S. Lewis is really laid back and loose, right? He doesn't care. He can he can do the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? He can he can throw together you know Norse dwarves and Santa Claus and and Greek fauns, and it's all good. Right, whereas Tolkien is like, my head is going to explode from reading this book. I can't handle it. Right, um, but that's not to say that Tolkien is like totally like can't leave any stone unturned. Like that, he he was uh, uh, Sir Calidor, very comfortable with the mysteries. Absolutely, if he didn't know, he didn't know. Right, and that was okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. Uh, by the way, Sir Calidor, what an excellent name. Uh, that is very good. Most people don't make it to book six. Sir Calidor is, of course, the name of the hero knight of book six of the Fairy Queen. Uh, very good. Very good. Strong work with the name there. Like it. Um, book six has always been one of my favorites. Uh, uh, one, two, and one, two, and six are, are my, my, uh, my favorites. But anyway, sorry. Book th- book four is super fun, I have to admit. I mean, they're all fun. I mean, what's not fun about the Fairy Queen? There's no parts of the Fairy Queen that aren't fun. Well, one or two, but they're short. Um, anyway, uh, yes. And Blue Wizard, you're right. Tolkien was also very aware of the power of mystery as well. It wasn't just like, you know, he's like, you know, I'm too lazy to answer or, or whatever. Um, he knew that not answering every mystery was a good thing. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Anyway, back to the questions uh, from the discussion or the comments from the discussion board that I was going to uh, 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 get to. Uh, so Not a Cat was talking about Frodo's cushions from last time. It says, Frodo is raised upon several cushions and scatters them when he bows to Glowin. But do we actually know how big those cushions would have been? 
I imagine modern readers might think of huge cushions as big as Frodo himself, but I'm fairly sure that even in J.R.R. Tolkien's day, they weren't nearly that big, and how can we guess how large Rivendell cushions might be? If they were about a foot square and only an inch or so thick, he could indeed sit upon a stack of them and be very comfortably supported in his chair. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely, Phil. That's what I always thought myself. Um, when he is uh, raised a, up on several cushions, uh, I'd always imagine those were like seat cushions, not uh, not like um, um, you know, not like throw pillows or like certainly not like you know the kind of like large poof that you might just sit on all by itself, right? Um, yeah, no, the, these would be like or like the kind of. Um, the kind of cushions that you can sometimes see in in like uh, on the se- on the seats of of like church pews, you know, newer school church pew, old school, new school church pews. Uh, anyway, yeah, exactly. Like the kind of cushions that that get tied onto the back of wooden chairs. Yes, exactly. Um, those are the kinds of cushions uh, that uh, that I've always thought of too. Relatively, relatively thin. Um, uh, 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 cushions, which of course also makes sense why they would get scattered uh, when he sits down. Like those cushions get tied onto the back of chairs for a reason, right? And it's not just because the kids will will run away with them and uh, uh, stack them places. If you don't, it's also because um, they, uh, if you've got a couple of them stacked up and you go down, of course, usually you're up on cushions because you're short, which means your feet aren't hitting the floor when you're up on the cushions, right? So when you get down, meaning you have to slide your butt off the front of the seat and drop to the ground, right? The sliding process pulls all the cushions up behind you, and then they fall down around on the cushions uh, on, on the floor around you, right? So um, that's a pretty normal procedure when it comes to cushion stacking. Uh, having had small children, in the end, we... Um, uh, with uh, my son Matthias, uh, he, he's grown out of this several years ago now. Uh, but back when he was little, he sat on an old unabridged d- dictionary I had for many years. Um, uh, we still have this old, now rather tattered and stained, uh, old unabridged dictionary that I got as a Christmas present, I think, one year when I was a kid. Um, because it was, it was the perfect height for him to sit on and reach the table uh, with our chairs and our table. Um, but, uh, yeah, no. So what were they stuffed with? Well, we don't know, but yeah, rags, uh, uh, hair like horse hair was a common stuffing for the, for that kind of cushion. Um, uh, yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, wool, sure. Possibly. I mean, any one of those things, but of course, one of the things, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's going to be, uh, um, it's going to be a smaller. Um, it's it's going to be more compressible, right? They're not going to be like, you know, uh, like memory foam or, you know, uh, some large uh, synthetic fiber, you know, a puffy synthetic fiber or something like that. Um, yeah, Amethorn, It's true that uh, a dictionary might seem like a strange Christmas present, but it was. It, I loved. I've always loved words, right? So that was always that was uh, that was that was a special present for me. Actually, my one of my best presents ever was the first time I ever got a thesaurus. Oh man, like that changed my life. That did. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah. So 
Uh, <laughs> Valori is thinking about how much elves would like memory foam. So true. Uh, anyway, um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. So, so that's. I, I, I assume that that's the kind of cushion because the the. I don't know how high the table is. He also, he does have a suitable chair, um, which I would imagine would be maybe set up a little bit high. Not exactly a high chair, like for a little kid, but um, probably a little higher. Uh, and then, um, uh, and then with a couple cushions, he'd probably be okay. Um <laughs> Sarah's laughing because Valamoinen still love that name. Uh, says it would be foam full of sad memories. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Elvish memory foam would be. You would sit on the memory foam, and you know you would be, you would be embraced by the memories of like loss and and fading, <laughs> all of the autumns that have been. <laughs> oh man, yeah, Nienna cushions. Exactly, Valori. That's what they'd call him for short. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the mattress of unnumbered tears. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that's just. But exactly, mad violinist. Those cushions would make them happy in an elvish kind of way, as Sam might say. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Ah. Oh, good. Anyway. So, uh, I believe in a comment to this, uh, Ardent Crayon was, uh, was asking, inviting me to speculate about, uh, about the possibility that Frodo's cushions were in fact spiritual cushions, to which I say, ha, ha, laugh it up, Crayon. Anyway, um... Okay, let's move on, <laughs> Mr. Spiritual Cushions. Okay, next one. So this is from Fourth Dauntless. Uh, during last week's class, we had a spirited argument about whether Frodo's reluctance to reveal the nature of his quest was due to the influence of the ring or due to simple caution. This got me thinking about how the ring acts on Frodo's will, and I wrote a long post about this on the general discussion board. One thing I noticed as I was hunting through the text is that the presence of a black rider seems to have a dramatic influence on how the ring behaves. When the ring influences Frodo at Bag End and in Bombadil's house, its mental influence is like rationalization. How rich and beautiful was its color? How perfect was its roundness? Etc. That, of course, in Bag End. When Frodo is contemplating chucking it in the fire, right? At, at Gandalf's instructions. When the wraiths are present, the ring feels to Frodo much more like an outside influence beating upon his will. This seems to be true whenever a wraith is present, regardless of whether or not the wraith is the Witch King. In fact, the ring acts much like it does when Frodo gets close to Mordor, simply beating upon his will. I think this shift might imply a lot about the relationship between Sauron and the Nine. They seem to carry a little bit of him with them, so their proximity acts much like Sauron's own proximity, albeit with reduced range. There's a lot, of course, to parse here. Let me kind of start at the end very briefly, Fourth Thalas, and then go back to the beginning with the stuff at the end. I... Here's my problem. I am not 100% convinced that it's proximity to Sauron that's actually making the ring act like that as it's getting towards Mordor. It seems to me that it's the ring itself that is changing. I mean, okay, obviously it's the ring itself that is changing. 
the ring is changing because it's getting closer to the source of its own power. Um, the text suggests that a couple times, that it's not like if Sauron went off, right? If Sauron went on a trip, right? As he's done before, right? If Sauron went to do a tour of the, uh, a tour of the East, uh, or whatever, um, then, uh, uh, anyway, so, uh, if that were to happen, would it be different? Right? I mean, I, this is a, a big what if, right? If Sauron weren't in Mordor as Frodo were approaching it, right? If Sauron had gone fishing somewhere, uh, would Frodo have had the same experience, right? Um, I suspect actually kind of, yeah, I do. I don't think it has to do... My own theory would be that it does not have to do with geographical proximity to Sauron, but rather... Um, Sauron's, uh, the ring's own approach to the source of its power. Exactly, uh, Brandon, being tied to, uh, uh, to, or a druid, uh, to, 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 to Sauron's forge. Exactly. Um, so there's, there's, uh, obviously, there's a lot that we could do there. Uh, this, this is a long conversation for another time, and we'll see about this. But like I said, I, I'm not, I'm not convinced that it's Sauron's proximity, uh, there. As far as the contrast, though, um, I do think it's interesting. It does... I, I I think that your premise seems to me to be right. Um, that it does respond differently. Here's one perhaps confounding variable, right? Um, the Barrow White. The ring temptation that Frodo experiences in the Barrow, right? No Black Riders around, but there are Barrowites around, right? Um, and it seems to be... I'm not sure that the temptation to use the ring isn't a little bit different. It strikes me as similar to the... Um, uh, it strikes me as similar to the temptation in the house of Tom Bombadil. Uh, definitely a, a bit of a different flavor, right? But there's definitely rationalization that's happening there. I agree that when the ring, um, you know, when he is uh, uh, sort of assaulted by the ring temptation uh, at Weathertop with the Witch King standing there, um, it does not, there's no rationalization. Uh, so I, I, that does seem to me an important, uh, <laughs> an, an important uh, uh, possibility there. I'm laughing because I, I think that Spiritual Boulders has changed his uh, uh, Discord name to Spiritual Cushions there. Anyway, um, yeah, um, so, yeah, I don't know, I, I, uh, Forthons, I didn't get a chance to read your longer post, uh, which I hope to do, and I certainly recommend everyone else go, uh, and look at that. And by the way, just sort of as a side note, um, this is one of the things, obviously, um, and this was sort of pointed out to me lately. I was talking with someone about exploring the Lord of the Rings. I think at Mythmoot, and they were saying, you know, it's it's really wonderful getting the chance to kind of think through every sentence and every paragraph in the way that we're doing. But of course, we kind of lose the bigger picture in a lot of ways, right? Um, and of course, there are some things that we're trying to track and go through. But you're absolutely right. But you see why we're doing that, right? The, so we're not going to lose it. We're just not going to necessarily talk about it in class. You guys 
are supposed to do that, right? Just like Fourth Dauntless is doing, right? So when you see these bigger trends and these bigger issues, write about it, right? You know, these things that we notice, uh, we're not, you know, like class is going to be, uh, our class time is for going through the text, right, bit by bit. But of course, there is like worlds and worlds worth of arguments and, uh, and, and discussions and sort of larger insights bringing things together. And of course, I love to talk about uh, those in, in small ways when we can here at the beginning, but, uh, uh, but really there's, uh, there's more that can, that can come from this. So, um, my sort of dream down the road, um, you know, we've, uh, talked about, I, you know, mentioned the possibility of doing some kind of group project, uh, and, uh, Tony has been beginning that, uh, going through and taking, uh, uh, writing up the notes from different, uh, uh from our, our, our earlier, uh, discussions, um, so that we can begin to sort of think about how would we compile this? Cause I do think I, I, I would like to make an actual written exploring Lord of the Rings, uh, drawn from our discussions here. Um, but of course the idea, right. Would not only be to have an exploring the Lord of the Rings, which is drawn from our discussions, but there could be a whole series of like books of essays, right. Which emerge from, uh, discussions that we have from the things that you guys are, 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 are putting together and saying, uh, as a result of this, uh, I can see a whole, a whole wealth of, um, you know, of, uh, uh, really interesting Tolkien scholarship, uh, that could emerge from, uh, from this course. So anyway, just to let you know, that's what I have in mind. Certainly conference papers and things like that. Um, anyway, cool. Um, so uh we'll let's uh we will um uh we will work on this. And yes, Tony, a separate book just from the field trips. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um Okay. So let's get back to the text. I'm going in the wrong direction for the text though. Okay, here we are. Throughout the rest of the meal they talked together, but Frodo listened more than he spoke, for the news of the Shire, apart from the ring, seemed small and far away and unimportant while Glowen had much to tell of events in the northern regions of Wilderland. Frodo learned that Grimbjorn the Old, son of Bjorn, was now the lord of many sturdy men, and, their, and to their land between the mountains and Mirkwood, neither orc nor wolf dared to go. Indeed, said Glowen, if it were not for the Bjornings, the passage from Dale to Rivendell would long ago have become impossible. They are valiant men and keep open the high pass and the ford of Carrick, but their tolls are high he added with a shake of his head, and like Bjorn of old, they are not over-fond of dwarves. Still, they are trusty, and that is much in these days. Nowhere are there any men so friendly to us as the men of Dale. They are good folk, the Bardings. The grandson of Bard the Bowman rules them, Brand, son of Bane, son of Bard. He is a strong king, and his realm now reaches far south and east of Esgaroth. Um, okay, cool. So, what do we learn here? Focusing on the first section, one thing that um, uh, one thing that really strikes me is the way in which these lands are said to develop. So you remember in the Hobbit, right, you know, I talked about the kind of string of beads, kind of you know, adventure tale that the Hobbit was. We have the adventures with the goblins and then with Gollum in the Misty Mountains, right? And then we have 
the meeting with Bjorn, right? And then, of course, you know, the eagles, you know, the, the wolves, and then the eagles, and then Bjorn's house, and then the trip through Mirkwood, and the spiders, and the elves, and then down by Beryl to Lake Town, right? And then we're in Lake Town, and then up to the Lonely Mountain. So those are the things that we have, right? That's, that's you know, Tolkien has a map, right? It does include this region, right? And so he has all this stuff kind of worked out. So fine. Um, so how how do we develop this? How do we move this forward? The, um, the Mirkwood itself, right? Remember at the end of The Hobbit, everybody was anticipating that that is, the elves of Mirkwood in particular, were anticipating that everything was going to get better now because the necromancer had been kicked out of Mirkwood, right? He was the bad apple that was, you know, causing everything to go bad in Mirkwood, and so when he was kicked out, everything was going to be fine, right? That was how it looked at the end of The Hobbit. That doesn't exactly pan out, right? Because, of course, Sauron doesn't give up Dol Guldur, he just leaves it. Um, and but he leaves it to his lieutenants, and and uh, uh, you know they still they still use it a lot, right? Um, so okay, so the evil has not passed out of Mirkwood, so Mirkwood is still dangerous. Okay, fine. Um, but outside of Mirkwood, things all seem to be getting better, right? We've got. Of course, we had Esgaroth, we had Lake Town, which was a fairly, as far as we could see, a fairly isolated human settlement, um, you know, there on the shores of the Long Lake near the edge of Mirkwood, um, trading with the Wood Elves and trading presumably with other men down to the south, right, from where they were. But um, there's... Uh, and so they've expanded, right? So you've got now the Kingdom of the Bardings, uh, which extends much further than that, right? Far south and east of Esgaroth. Okay, so now there's this new, much more stable kingdom of men over on the one side of Mirkwood, and on the other side a new kingdom of men has emerged, right? The Bjornings. Now, um, as far as like, how did Bjorn become a a bunch of sturdy men, right? As he was kind of on his own uh, before. But the answer is, if you remember, and this is this happens in like two sentences uh, in passing at the end of The Hobbit when they pass through again. When Gandalf and Bilbo arrive at Bjorn's house and spend the whole winter with him um, on their way home, uh, he calls a gathering of all of the woodmen. So you remember those woodmen who were going to be raided by the goblins and wargs had not the wargs caught fire instead, right? Uh, the, 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 the place where we had the, you know, 15 birds and five fir trees and the gathering place of the wargs and goblins, they were planning to gather that very night in order to go down and descend upon the woodmen and drive them out, right? Those woodmen, the same woodmen whose sheep, the eagles were quite keen to steal, uh, and quite cautious about their bows, right? Those are the um, uh, those are the 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 woodmen uh, that we're talking about. So yeah, those get called. So Bjorn summons them together, and we're told again in like a sentence that he later on becomes their chief. So he becomes not just 
the Lord of his own house and out of touch with all of his own kind? Though there's the question, of course, about what exactly his kind is, right? Um, but anyway, yeah. Uh, so he comes to rule them. So those woodmen and Bjorn come together, and, the, and, the, and that's who the Bjornings are, right? That's who the—when the, the, he's, when he's talking about the Bjornings, when he's talking about these, um, uh, these trusty men that keep open the high pass in the fort of Carrick, that is who he's talking about. So there's, um, there's not as—it's not a kingdom, right? We don't get. Uh, he is a strong king, and his realm now reaches far. And he, we, we don't. He, he's not a king. We don't get a realm exactly for the Bjornings, um, but we know that they are valiant men, right? Um, and uh, he is the lord of many sturdy men. So he's there's many men, and uh, Grimbjorn is the lord of them, right? So there's another, and it's not a realm, but bunch of people over there, right? Um, so those are the Bjornings on the one side of Mirkwood, and then we got the Bardings on the other side of Mirkwood. Um, in other words, from a, like, geopolitical standpoint, things have kind of gotten better in this region since the time of The Hobbit, right? When it was the whole business, remember, was just the wild. Um... And that was one of the points, right? You know, there was, it was, it was a whole bunch of, um, you know, realms which were wild in different ways. Not always bad, right? I mean, the eagles in Bjorn were helpful and friendly, but still very wild, right? Um, and the elves, of course, are their own issue, right, in Mirkwood. So uh, I, the, the whole thing was, was this one big area uh, of adventure, things have now changed, right? Mike, exactly. Smaug is gone. No more dragon, right? Dragon replaced with kingdom of dwarves, allied with growing kingdom of men. Um, necromancer gone. Dol Guldur is still an issue, but necromancer gone. Um, and yes, the goblins were decimated, so for a while that got better, but we, we, we've been told already earlier on uh, that the goblins uh, have recovered uh, from the Battle of Five Armies as far as their numbers are concerned. Um, so, anyway, so... Still to this day, it would seem that things are still a little better and brighter and easier, right? Um, so it's interesting to me that Glowen speaks of difficulties, right? If it were not for the Bjornings, the passage from Dale to Rivendell would long ago have become impossible, right? It wasn't impossible in the old days uh, when Bilbo went through... Though, maybe, you know, the fact that Thorin and company made it through the wild to Erebor from Rivendell perhaps is not exactly a contradiction of that concept, right? I mean, the kind of path that they had to take in the end, right, the kind of adventures that they had along the way, not exactly the kind of adventures you want every single trade caravan, right, to be experiencing when they come through. Exactly. Um, so, exactly, Fourth Dauntless. The passage would have been impossible without some rather extraordinary luck. Absolutely. Exactly what I was thinking. Um, so, um, anyway, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, it's, it's all, that was all very fortunate. And again, not exactly the kind of thing upon which you're going to count or going to want to have to count if, uh, 
you know, if you're going to really try to sort of open those roads up. Exactly. Um, so, yes, um, I think that they keep open the High Pass and the Fort of Carrick. The High Pass is the pass, I believe, that he's there referring to the pass that they tried to cross, right? The pass where they got waylaid uh, in what was called the Goblin's Front Porch, right? Um, so the High Pass and the Fort of Carrick uh, is, are both two passages which, they, that which the Bjornings keep open now uh, so that there is a regular and protected road, that the path uh, which the company was following in The Hobbit was meant to be a good path, uh, but it was not being maintained by anybody, right? It was not being guarded and protected by anybody. And, uh, and now it is. So that's clearly, uh, that's clearly a step off. But, but again, the, the, what interests me is the sort of the, 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 the tense and mood of his verbs here. The passage from Dale to Rivendell would long ago have become impossible. So he is suggesting that things are getting, have been getting worse, right? Over, it's now been a long time. It's been, what, 77 years um, since the time of The Hobbit uh, to this point. So if, uh, if back, like, right after, you know, when Bilbo and Gandalf went back without much trouble, right, uh, their return journey was relatively easy. They didn't go through Mirkwood, right? And they, 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 they took it easy. It was a little less urgent. But still, they crossed over the mountains, didn't have any problems, right, crossing over the mountains. So it sounds like right after the dragon died, right after the goblins were, were uh, uh, you know, almost wiped out or very largely culled in the Misty Mountains, um, and uh, in the immediate aftermath of the retreat of the Necromancer things seem to have been definitely easier. But in the 77 years since then, things have been getting, again, steadily and steadily worse. But the Bjornings have been continuing to sort of fight the fight, have been maintaining uh, these things. So the, this image, it suggests to me a kind of, like, the the places of, of, of peace, or at least of safety, or relative safety, are com- compressing again, right? So now they can keep open you know, the Ford of Karak uh, and the High Pass, right? But that's kind of what they do, right? Um, what they seem to be able to be uh, um, capable of maintaining. Um, yeah, Fourth Dauntless, I, I mean, you're right. Like, the, the, the toys came from uh, Dale for Bilbo's party. He was getting shipments, right? We definitely had caravans of toys and musical instruments coming from Dale for Bilbo's party 17 years ago. Um, we don't know, though, that these difficulties hadn't been increasing then, however. Because, um, again, it they would have come across the fort of Carrick and over the high pass, which the Bjornings are maintaining, right? And they would have had to pay, the dwarves who were bringing those, that caravan would have had to pay a stiff toll to the Bjornings on their way through, right? Um, yeah, yeah. But, um, but yes, Tony, I'm also remembering that too, that in the very beginning of chapter two, in the years after Bilbo's departure, 
bad news does seem to pile up more. Uh, and I do think that there is some reason to think that it has been in the last 17 years that things have gotten... Uh, the badness has been escalating over the last 17 years. Um, but, um, yes, and Mike, you're absolutely right. Um, the enemy... Uh, putting forth his power more and more to look for his ring is going to be increasing the pressure, right? So, so yes, there's good reason to think that from the time of the capture of Gollum, right, which is when Sauron learns for certain that his ring is out there um, and in the hands of a hobbit, right, that's going to be the time when he's going to be uh, really redoubling his efforts there. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the, do the Bjornings still give the goblins more than fireworks? Seem to. Yeah. Um, uh, as the, you know, traditional enemies uh, of, uh, uh, of both the orcs and the wolves, right? And that is, you know, very much in the spirit of Bjorn. I mean, I, uh, I, I've always loved that. Um, Grim Bjorn, the old son of Bjorn, was now the lord of many sturdy men, and to their land, between the mountains and Mirkwood, neither orc nor wolf dared to go. Um, yes, there are no goblin orc raids into these la- into those lands these days, right? Um, you know, Bjorn's um, uh, Bjorn's sturdiness, Bjorn's. The, the Bjornings make uh, bad enemies, right? Um, absolutely. So this is... Um, these woodmen, by the way, this is the same term that Tolkien used. The parallel kind of society that I think we should be imagining here are the woodmen, the woodmen that Turin goes to join at the end of the Turin Turambar story, right? The place where he takes the name Turambar. Um and marries his sister, right? Um, those woodmen are like the woodmen that uh, uh, we seem to see outside of Mirkwood. The parallels are quite close, especially if you look at the um, the way that he describes the woodmen. Um, not not only in that section, but earlier on in the. Uh, well, I say not only in that section, as if Tolkien got to that section uh, in the alliterative poem, but in the alliterative poem, uh, the part of the Turin story where Turin first connects with the outlaws, right? The outlaws are outlaws from uh, that region, preying upon the woodmen uh, who live in that area. Uh, so when we see the woodmen whom the, uh, the, those um, uh, outlaws are kind of preying on and fighting against, those are very much um, the woodmen who are like... Uh, uh, these these woodmen in Mirkwood, the woodmen that the eagles are nervous about and the goblins and orcs are planning to attack in the Hobbit and whom Bjorn forms into the Bjornings. Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, good. Um, are we to understand these woodsmen as being, these woodmen as being akin to the Rohirrim through the Aethiods somehow? Or are they all distant cousins, descendants of the men of Rovanian, who fell in the long years against the Wayne Riders as Gondor's allies? Mm. Well, I 
I've always understood the Bardings um, to be more the um, the sort of direct descendants of the like you know all those those chaps in the Gondorian history with the with the Gothic names right um, uh, yeah. Valori, that might necessitate another field trip. I agree. I, it, they, 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 they definitely could both be. I mean, I don't, I don't see any reason why they shouldn't be. Um, yeah, I definitely don't see any reason why they, why they shouldn't be. Um, yeah. Um... Linguistically speaking, so they're. I, I'm again. It's so hard because all of this is stuff that that Tolkien retconned from The Hobbit. Right again, he was not writing that kind of story when he wrote The Hobbit. He was just including fun elements that he liked. Uh, so, um, a lot of the stuff. If you want to look at the linguistic stuff, like oh well, doesn't the fact that the um, you know the Bardings use Norse names. Um, doesn't that suggest that, you know, there's a link? Well, yeah, sure. Except the fact that the Bardings use uh, uh, um, Norse names was a piece of retcon of Tolkien's later on, right? So it's it's um, it doesn't exactly kind of go back. But uh, anyway, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I we certainly don't have any other positive reason to think elsewise about the woodman i think um yeah yeah um anyway i like the fact that the bjornings charge tolls however um the bjornings are not the allies of the dwarves, right? They are not over fond of dwarves any more than Bjorn was over fond of dwarves, right? Um, why did Bjorn help uh, Thorn and company? Because he was tricked in part, but he's not dumb, right? Um, you know, he he didn't just get bamboozled and didn't know what was happening, right? Um, he got, you know, Gandalf kind of sneaked everybody in while he was distracted, but. You know, he could have kicked them out later on, right? Um, I mean, he definitely... Uh, he definitely uh, 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 chose to take them in, even when Thorin first showed up, right? When Thorin and Balin first come around the corner, he um, he lets them stay, even just the two of them, right? And why does he do that? He does that because he's heard of Thorin, and Thorin has a reputation Right, he knows his name Oakenshield, um, and he knows that Thorin personally and his family in general are famous for killing goblins. Right, the one thing they are known for was their ferocious war with the goblins of the mine in the mines of Moria. That's even in the chapter chapter one of the Hobbit that gets mentioned. So. The full story of the Battle of Azanul Bazaar doesn't get worked out until later on, but we know that, you know, Bjorn has heard of this because it was comparatively local to him, right? So he harbors Thorin and his friends 
because Thorne and his friends are anti-goblins, right? Um, any enemy of the goblins is, well, if not a friend, at least not an enemy uh, of Bjorn. Um, so he's not fond of dwarves. He doesn't like dwarves, um, but he puts up with them. And I think that we can kind of see... It seems to me that Glowen's attitude towards the Bjornings is very parallel to the Bjorn... likely to be very parallel to the Bjornings' attitude towards them, right? Um, Still, they are trusty, and that is much in these days, right? Um, They are trusty. Uh, It doesn't mean they're friendly, right? It doesn't mean they are, um, uh, you know, they're, they're staunch allies, what they are, by trusty, that means they are unlikely to side with the enemy, right? Um, the Bjornings can be trusted because they are not going to, like, do deals with the goblins or something like that, right? They are not going to sell the dwarves out to the goblins. They easily could do, right? Um, you know, if if, if an unscrupulous, unscrupulous Bjorning chief wanted to cut a deal with the with the goblins, he could tell them when a dwarf caravan was coming, right, and let them ambush them, right? Easy to do that. But they would never do that. And the dwarves know that they can rely upon them uh, to be the enemies of the dwarves' enemies. And I suspect that the Bjornings feel much the same about the dwarves, especially the dwarves of the Lonely Mountain, Right. Okay, your dwarves coming from Dale, right? Okay, yeah, you're trusty, right? We're we're not gonna worry that you're gonna join in with the goblins or that you're bringing stuff to trade with the goblins, right? Bring, bringing them better weapons and armor to trade to them, right? No, uh, you're you're you know you're trusty, so we'll we don't we don't particularly like you, but we'll we'll definitely let you go because we're not worried about that. Um, yeah. So um, yeah, and JJ, I agree. Um. Bjorn's rescue of Thorin at the battle, uh, it does show that he seems to have at least gained respect or friendship for Thorin. Um, I agree. I think that um, Bjorn certainly would have respect for Thorin, and presumably just even seeing the situation in the battlefield, right? Um, I, I suspect that Bjorn is wise enough simply to perceive what had happened, how Thorin came to be surrounded in the midst of his enemies the way that he is, right? By looking, even if, you know, Bjorn himself comes up like over the, over the, the crown of the hill, right? And looks down and see, he'll, he'll see the path that Thorin's charge took him in and he'll see the enemy surrounding Thorin. Um, so the respect that he gave to Thorin by allowing him to stay in his home would, I think, be amplified by what he would be seeing there on the battlefield that day uh, as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Lalith, I agree. Bjorn isn't, isn't mean. Um, he's not... Um, he seems to be... He's wild, right? He's wild. He's, he's more like a wild animal than he is like a civilized person, right? Um... And that's not a bad thing, right? Um, it's not necessarily a good thing. He's not a tame bear. <laughs> good, both, both Millie and Forthala said that at the same time. Exactly. He's not a tame bear. Um, <laughs> exactly. Uh, he's, he's, 
you know, so he's, 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 he's trusty, but he's unpredictable. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. Let's see. Um, Matt points out that it's odd that Bjorn seems fond of Bilbo in a way that he's not of the dwarves. Um, I wonder if it's Bilbo's sense of wonder at his house. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, in the way that he that he seems more like a child. Yeah. Um, sure, sure. I, I. He does seem more fond of Bilbo. Uh, you can tell by how disrespectful he is, right? Little bunny is getting is getting nice and fat. Um, yeah, I, I I I do think that um, he's got to appear to be almost completely harmless to Bjorn as well, right? I mean, like dwarves have a reputation; hobbits have no reputation, and uh, it, it would seem right. Um, and if Bilbo's the only hobbit that Bjorn has ever known, he's certainly not going to be very worried to meet new hobbits, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and I do think that there's something to be said about Bilbo's cuteness and charm. Absolutely. He must look completely adorable uh, to uh, to Bjorn. I absolutely agree with that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and certainly he would have had a chance to get to know Bjorn. Uh, you know, Bilbo and, and Bjorn would have had a chance to get to know each other uh, when when they returned. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I definitely uh, I can definitely see why he would put Bilbo fairly quickly into a new category. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Lilith, you're right. Everyone seems to treat Bilbo differently in The Hobbit only because they don't know what he is and he seems odd but not dangerous. Yes. Um, Gollum is the only person who's afraid of Bilbo when he meets him. I'm talking because Bilbo has a sword, right? Which is Gollum's size. Um, yeah, nobody else. Uh, everyone is just kind of curious from the trolls on down, right? Everyone is just kind of curious and puzzled uh, when they meet Bilbo. Few people are intimidated when they meet Bilbo. Even Smaug. I absolutely agree, Fort Thomas. Even Smaug. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, you might think that somebody like Bjorn, um, somebody as non-tame as Bjorn is, might start off with a kind of default distrust of anything new. Right. Um, but that doesn't seem to be the case, or at least isn't applied to Bilbo. Right. Um, it seems with Bjorn, it's those that he does know that he doesn't trust. Right. Uh, he doesn't trust the or He knows the orcs very well. Right. He knows the wargs very well. He knows dwarves, it seems, reasonably well. And he doesn't trust any of them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, Matt says greengrocers are seldom seen as threatening. Exactly. True enough. Um, uh, yes, exactly. Um, and Tony, I was thinking about the flowers, too. How much Bilbo loved Bjorn's flowers. Um, it does lead you to think that they probably would have uh, uh, had a lot to talk about, right? Have gotten along better, probably, than Bilbo and the dwarves would have done, even in a short time. Um 
Yes. Yes. Uh, they would have had more to talk about, I think, than Bjorn and the dwarves would have. Um, for Thalys, I agree. If only Bjorn could have met Sam, could could have met Sam, right? Uh, surely he would have really loved Sam. Okay, other points I wanted to make in here, I don't think so. Um, interesting, the distinction between they are trusty, which is what Glowen says of the Bjornings, and they are good folk which he says of the Bardings. They are good folk. Um, they are friends. Uh, he, 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 he appreciates the Bjornings. He's glad that they're trusty. Um, it is important to have them for allies because of the passes, right? But he regrets their tolls. They can't really be friends. They can't really be allies or friends, right? Because they charge them so much for their tolls, and the dwarves resent that, right? Um, but um, uh, but the dwarves seemed, and Glowen seems to genuinely like uh, the Bardings, and respect them, and even admire them, right? Um, yeah. Uh, Matt was asking uh, if the naming of people by their founding chief is a norm for the dwarves, uh, or is this just for this passage? That is a great question, but I think it's not a dwarfish custom. I think it's more of a human custom. Um, I mean, the ING ending there, right? Um, I, of course, we will see it exactly, JJ, with the Aeorlingas, right? Um so that's a that's a exactly it's a Germanic thing. Um, think about, uh, of course, like the old um, uh, Morse book, right? The House of the Wolfings. Um, similar. Now there, those there, the different tribes are named after their totem animal, right? The Wolfings are are the wolf tribe essentially, um, but that's how they're called. Um, but if you have these core central figures, right? Um, these core... You know, so Bjorn and Bard, right? Bard, the one who, you know, slew the dragon and re-established the kingdom of Dale, and then Bjorn, of course, who brought them all together and made them into a people at all, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, he... Um, it makes sense that they would take those names, right? That they would call themselves the Bardings uh, and the Bjornings. Um, but again, I think it's not necessarily an insight into dwarvish uh, nomenclature, because again, the form of the nomenclature, at least, is human. It's Germanic. Whatever Norse, Anglo-Saxon, Gothic, whatever it is, that any of them are speaking, right? Um, it, it kind of works for that. Um, of course, Matt, we do see that, I mean, you know, well, no, because if you think about it, although they they often talk about Durin, right? Exactly. They know themselves as Durin's folk, but they also call themselves the Longbeards, right? So their name for themselves, the Longbeards, um, has nothing to do with Durin's name. Though, again, they do call themselves Durin's, uh, uh, Durin's folk as well. Um, yeah. 
But it does seem to me that it's not a dwarvish thing, but a human thing, would be my reading of that. Um, okay. <laughs> Matt is saying that then the elves who lived in Holland would have been called the Celebrim Borings. Uh, yes. Yes, I suppose they would have been uh, by, by the local men. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, Flamifry agree the dwarves name their houses after their founding fathers, except when they don't, right? I mean, they remember their founding fathers. It's important. But they actually, their family names are actually different, like Longbeards, right? It's the family name, technically, uh, of Thorin's family. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, okay. What time is it? Hey, let's do another slide. And what of your own people? asked Frodo. There is much to tell, good and bad, said Glowen. Yet it is mostly good. We have so far been fortunate, though we do not escape the shadow of these times. If you really wish to hear of us, I will tell you tidings gladly. But stop me when you are weary. Dwarves' tongues run on when speaking of their handiwork, they say. And with that, Glowen embarked on a long account of the doings of the Dwarf Kingdom. He was delighted to have found so polite a listener, for Frodo showed no signs of weariness, and made no attempt to change the subject, though actually he soon got rather lost among the strange names of people and places he had never heard of before. He was interested, however, to hear that Dan was still king under the mountain, and was now old, having passed his 250th year, venerable, and fabulously rich. Of the ten companions who had survived the Battle of Five Armies, seven were still with him, Dwalin, Glowen, Dory, Nori, Bifer, Bofer, and Bomber. Bomber was now so fat that he could not move himself from his couch to his chair at table, and it took six young dwarves to lift him. Okay. Um, by the way, yeah, Tony, I am so behind glowing on this, right? Like, uh, how delightful it is to find a polite listener who shows no sign of weariness and makes no attempt to change the subject. Uh, believe me, I can appreciate that. Um... Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, so, Glowen's introduction. We have so far been fortunate, though we do not escape the shadow of these times, is a really interesting opening. There is much to tell, good and bad, yet it is mostly good. We have so far... Now, so far... I think means in time, right? Uh, that is to say, like, to this point we have been fortunate. Doom might come upon us at any moment, right? Uh, the inevitable collapse of our kingdom may yet be, you know, soon at hand, but it hasn't happened yet, so we have so far been fortunate, is how I take that, right? Um, we have so far been fortunate, though we do not escape the shadow of these times. So, We've been fortunate, though, you know, things are tough for us, too, right? Things are tough all over now. Um, I'm trying to think about fortunate. Of course, 
the the reason I'm pausing here is that I can't help but think, it just just kind of just occurred to me, um, laying the emphasis on fortunate there. I, this is Erebor. This is the Lonely Mountain, right? When I think about good fortune in the Lonely Mountain, I can't help but think about Bilbo and his luck. Um, so I was just kind of pausing there for a second, asking myself, do I think that Glowin is thinking in those terms? No, I don't. I don't. I think it's more general. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but there does... Doesn't there suggest... There seems suggested a, a general kind of uh, pessimism underlying that statement, right? Um, we have so far been fortunate. Does seem to suggest a person whose overall expectation is that things are going to be bad eventually, sooner or later, right? Um, and that to not have encountered disaster and to have had this stretch of growth and prosperity is lucky, right? Um, yeah, ah, very true, Matt. Uh, Matt is looking at the pun, right, between... Um, of fortunate, right? They've been fortunate in more than one sense, right? They've been lucky, uh, but they've also gotten rich as well. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, yes. Good. Tony, I agree with you. It also does mean that they're not living in an isolated way like the hobbits were, right? Like the hobbits in the Shire. The hobbits have also been fortunate, but they don't know that they've been fortunate. Um, but more importantly, Tony, thinking about the uh, shadow of these times, right? Hobbits don't even really know. They've heard rumors. Frodo's heard l- rumors because he's looked for them, right? He has sought out the rumors and thus found them um, by talking to dwarves and other travelers who have come through. But most of the hobbits have no idea that there has been any kind of shadow at all. At least they don't know that yet. Um so yes, it is interesting to see that they, the dwarves, though we might think or sort of assume that they're kind of isolated inside their mountain, um, the Lonely Mountain isn't that lonely. And yes, Valamoinen, they don't have rangers protecting them either. Also a perfectly fair point. Yeah. Um, yes, good. Um yeah, Katriana, that's interesting. Katriana points out that Glowen still remembers being homeless for decades. Um, he, she says, I don't think any of them from his generation would be a, a bit reticent uh, uh, to trust that their fortune would last. Yeah, exactly. That they, um, yes, those who grew up in hardship are much more likely to be, to think like, well, you know, things are going well now, but this can't last forever, right? Um, Katriana, yeah, is Gimli likely to be less pessimistic than his father? I mean, Gimli was still born in exile, right? And and remembers it, clearly. Um, but didn't experience quite as much of it as his, as his dad, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it does also make the dwarves appreciate their good fortune. Yes. Um... Yeah, exactly. And as uh, Fourth Dauntless and Matt were both saying, um, the shadow of these times, is, you know, the not escaping the shadow of these times may also 
simply be a, a kind of a veiled allusion to that topic which Glowen said they shouldn't talk about, right? That is, the emissary from Sauron that brought him or sent Glowen there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Um, good. Good. Let's see. Um, other, see the other doings of, uh, so one last thing from that first paragraph. Dwarves tongues run on when speaking of their handiwork, they say. Two notes on that sentence. First, I think sometimes we forget this about dwarves. Um, when I hear people talk about dwarves, uh, Tolkien readers often seem to remember the secrecy of dwarves, right? Um, uh, they seem to remember the secrecy of dwarves and uh, focus on that, like dwarves are always kind of closed-lipped. Except they're not. Uh, they're sc- they're closed-lipped about some things, and in some ways, but in others, they're not at all, right? And so here, Glowen is talking about not only his own, but his people's penchant uh, for having their tongues run on when speaking of their handiwork, right? They love talking about their work, right? They love talking about their uh, their their craftsmanship. Um, so, uh, so anyway, that's it, it's an it's an important thing to remember. We'll see it, of course, right? We will see Gimli uh, being overwhelmed, um, and when he's overwhelmed, gushing. Right about the the glittering caves later on, um, but um, but anyway, yeah, yeah, um, uh, they they do love to talk about things. Um, yes, they're very talkative about the stuff they make, just not about how they make it. Right, Mike says this is the engineer's world. Keep your trade secrets, but advertise your outcomes. Yeah, something like that. Something like that. Um, Yes, yes. Um, so, anyway, I, that was an, uh, an interesting reminder. As I say, sometimes we can overemphasize, I think, the the closed-lippedness of dwarves. Um, the second thing I wanted to point out about this sentence is their handiwork. I mean, okay, like the saying makes perfect sense. The fact that he says that in regard to what he's talking about, right? Um handiwork makes you think of like their smithcraft, right? Like, so a smith will talk about, I mean, if you look at a really nice axe, right, that somebody has made himself and he'll go on and on to tell you all about this axe, right? That seems to be what that sentence is talking about. Glowen is not talking about his handiwork. He's talking about what the dwarves of Erebor have accomplished, Right. Um, so, the, I mean, the, the two conclusions I think we can draw from that. Um, first, I think the thing that we're safest concluding from that is this sort of sense of of kind of corporate identity for the dwarves. Right. Their kingdom that they have made. This is something that all of the dwarves have made. Right. And all of the dwarves feel the same pride in what they have done. Uh, you know, as a kingdom uh, since the return of the dwarves to Erebor. 
as if it were their own hand, as if it were an axe that they had made, right? Um, but the other thing that I wonder is Glowen's own role here. Glowen is a very important dwarf, right? Um, I mean, he is one of the one of the companions of, you know, one of the twelve companions of the great Thorin Oakenshield. Um, he has been sent as an ambassador here to Rivendell. It is clear that Glowen is a very important... He, he, he's a VID. Yeah, he's a very important dwarf, right? Um, I don't know exactly what position Glowen has in the Lonely Mountain, but, um, but I think that there's a, one of the... It's the word handiwork, right? Um, had he used a broader term there, right? Um, even like work, right? Dwarves' tongues run on when speaking of their speaking of their work or something like that. But handiwork makes it sound like, again, like a craft that you yourself uh, forge. And I wonder if there's, um, I wonder if there's a sense in which Glowen himself as one of the leaders of the Lonely Mountain Dwarves, definitely feels like this kingdom is in part his own handiwork. Um, and not entirely, but in part. And you know what I can't... Um, um, you know what I can't help but remember? What I can't help but remember is the original contract, the original bargain with Thorin and company. What were they going to do? They were going to get to the Lonely Mountain, and what were they going to do? They were gonna. Um, uh, they were gonna split it up, right? They were gonna divide it into fourteen equal shares. Exactly. They were gonna they, uh, Luke. They're gonna split the treasure fourteen ways, right? Um, and it's almost like they that didn't happen. Right, and there there could be no thought of that, of course, as we get already by the end of the Hobbit, um, and yet, in a different sense, they do, right? Um, in a, in a different sense, they do. I think that we can see that all of them do have a share in this. Um, it seems that all of those dwarves that came in are now very important dwarves, uh, and. We can if so. I mean, we don't get much information, like, you know, what's Bifer doing these days. We have no idea. We never had any idea, really, what Bifer was up to most of the time. Um, but you know, from what we learn about Balin, from what we learn about Glowin, um, it seems that all of the dwarves, all of those dwarves, are in fact very important. Have played a major role. Uh, in the forming of this kingdom, that that this kingdom is, I think, perhaps in some ways their handiwork as well. Um, uh, exactly, <laughs> the life Glowen has been lighting fires like crazy, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, so um, uh, so I, I do think that this is. Um, uh, I still would lay the primary emphasis on that first point that I made, this sense of, of the kind of corporate identity, right? That the kingdom is the handiwork of all of us, of all the dwarves of the Lonely Mountain. Um, but, um, uh, <laughs> but, 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 yeah, for Thoughtless, I agree. Uh, Bomber's 
increased fatness uh, and uh, his six body servants do seem to suggest that he is very important and wealthy as well. So, yeah, I mean, everything that we know, we don't know all that much about what what has come of the ten surviving companions. Um, uh, of course, we will know about the ones who are not named here, uh, more about them than about any of the rest of them. But given what we do know of, of all ten, everything that we know suggests that they are important uh, and leaders in the Arabor community. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and of course we still get, this is like the last fat joke at Bomber's expense. I think this is, this is, we're finally done uh, <laughs> laughing at Bomber's girth. Um, uh, yes, yes. I think that's, uh, I think that's the last time. Um, but notice it still seems that's still a joke as far as I can see. It's still a joke. Um, but certainly does suggest remarkable wealth. I don't like to think that he's like Baron Harkonnen, Tony Mead, uh, though maybe if he had some, uh, what are they called? The, the, uh, things that hold Baron Harkonnen up, I'm blanking on uh, the contraptions that why, why Baron Harkonnen doesn't need six young dwarves um, yeah, anyway yeah, yeah um, suspensers, yes suspensers um, suspenser like globes it's, it's, not, it's not just a belt, he's got like things attached onto him. Um, uh, yeah, that hold him up even when he, like, dies. And... Suspenser globes. Okay, yeah, globe. I thought there were globes involved. Yeah. That, that, I, think that's, I think that's right. I think that's right. Gotta read Dune again. It's been a couple of years. I haven't read Dune since we did the Mythgard Academy uh, class on it. Uh, I, I, I need to reread Dune, obviously. Maybe... Oof. Maybe one of these days I'll take the plunge and read all the rest of the Dune books like everyone tells me I need to. But I've never dared to because I hear they get really bad. And the one time I tried, I didn't enjoy it. Anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll see. We can revisit it when the film comes out. Agreed. Agreed. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I won't go on to read the stuff by his son, Scudo, but I will... Uh, uh, but the other books by him, I'll, I'll give them another shot. I'll give them another shot. I didn't, I, I started Dune Messiah. I got about halfway through and I didn't like it. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll give it another shot. Um, that's someday, someday that will happen. Um, okay. Other points I wanted to make. Love the fact that, uh, Dan is praised for being three things. Being old, venerable, which kind of means old. Like, he's old, he's really old, and he's fabulously rich. Um, uh, this is, um, uh, this is the, 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 this is the high life, right? This is as good as it gets, uh, from a dwarvish point of view. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. 
he uh it's interesting that although remember he was just praising um brand right who's a strong king calls brand a strong king doesn't compliment dan as far as we can see right um he's i mean he, apart from saying that he's fabulously rich right which i guess is sufficient praise right um but his strength as a king he he is a good king right we could see that right away we could see that from as soon as he starts giving away the treasure right doing with the treasure what you're meant to do with treasure uh in the hobbit we could see that dan was going to be a good king um but uh, and he does seem to be known for generosity tony and i think it is no coincidence that the king who is known for generosity ends up being fabulously rich right you don't you, giving away your treasure, this does not lead to not having any treasure, right? This leads to becoming fabulously rich, um, if you do it right, right? And Dan is clearly doing it right. It was that again. That was clear from the very beginning. Um, yeah, venerable. So I kind of, um, um, I was kind of joking a little bit, saying that venerable kind of meant really old. You know, he's old and really old and fabulously rich. Um, I wonder... I wonder exactly... You know, we talked... This word came up. When did this word come up? I know we talked about this because we got to this passage. It was just earlier in this chapter, but that means it could be any time in the last six months. <laughs> but anyway, um, sometime in the last 17 class sessions, we were talking about the word venerable. Um... Uh, oh, yeah, it was in Elrond's description? Was it in El- Elrond's? Yes, it's venerable as a king of men. Yeah, 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 that's right. That's right, it's in Elrond's description. Uh, right? It was Elrond. Hail is a warrior in the fullness of his... Uh, yes. Venerable as a king crowned with many winters. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Hail is a young warrior in the fullness of his strength. That's it. Um... Venerable, as it's used in that description, does suggest old, is correlated with old. Um, but obviously, it's about respect, but that's not a strong enough word for venerable, right? Um, Iwin Dillian, I agree with you. It does imply wisdom, I think, to some extent. That seems right. Uh, Tony says it's about honor as, uh, as well as about respect. Yes, honor and more importantly, being worthy of honor, right? Um, uh, I was just, I think I mentioned recently, I've been doing a little C.S. Lewis reread um, uh, lately. I hadn't done it in a couple of years. Uh, and I was just i was just reading The Abolition of Man, uh, in which Lewis talks about describing things like calling a a waterfall sublime um, and about how that word is not like when you apply the word sublime to a waterfall, it's not, you're not describing your own feelings. You're describing the, uh, like the, 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 what the waterfall is worthy of, like the, the kind of reaction that the waterfall is worthy of. Right. Um, so venerable, someone who is venerable, it's not just saying this is a person who 
has honor, right? It is a person to whom honor and reverence is appropriate, right? Uh, it, it, it is appropriate to show them honor. They, they, are, they are worthy of honor. Whether or not they receive it, right? They're worthy of it. And you can tell that they are worthy of it. Um, but does it have a, you know, a higher sense than that? Um, it is certainly, um, the word venerable, of course, is very, uh, you know, is famously used in a Catholic setting, Kyle, as you're reminding us, um, to, uh, uh, describes, it's like when you're right below a saint, right? You're not quite sainted, you're venerated, um, uh, so, like, like, of course, my favorite non-saint, the Venerable Bede, um, whom I hope they never saint, and if they do saint, I'll carry on calling him the Venerable Bede. I don't care. You can't make me not call him that, because it's the best name ever. Um, so the Venerable Bede is not quite a saint, right? But he's pretty close to saint. So that kind of, like, like worshipful, to what extent is their actual sort of worshipfulness um, uh, attached to somebody who is called venerable. I don't think that Tolkien's use of the word in either one of these passages, here or back in the description of Elrond, implies anything like that kind of Catholic usage, um, to be venerated in that kind of formal sense, like to have prayers said to you, or that kind of thing. I don't think that's what we're getting here. Um, highly, very worthy of honor, having a presence which um, uh, which elicits from the viewer uh, honor and respect, right? Um, uh, definitely. Uh, are definitely there. So, you know, uh, Dan, and again, Iwan Dilly and I agree with you, wisdom does seem to be attached to that, too. The correlation between honor, respect, and age, right? Uh, uh, you think wisdom seems to be a kind of a common thread uh, in there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, good. Okay. Um, so, so I'm just thinking... Again, it's interesting that strength is not insisted on here. It's it's almost it goes without saying. He is a strong king. Um, that was the praise that Glowen gave directly to the human king, to the king of the Bardings, right? But he doesn't say that of Dan, um, and uh, I think in part because it's implied. But I think also, perhaps, he wants to say more than that. When he calls the king of the Bardings, when he calls Brand a strong king, he says that leading up to, and his kingdom is expanding in the south and the east, right? Dan's kingdom might be expanding too, but in a different sense, right? Um, I do think perhaps strength is a given with Dan, given his reputation, Tony. Um, but again, I also sort of wonder if it, if, again strength of kingship perhaps is different, right? Yes, Ambrosius, Bomber is expanding, but the kingdom of the dwarves itself doesn't seem to be. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, okay, where... 
the kingdom of the Bardings is growing geographically. His influence is growing geographically. Dan's influence isn't growing geographically. Um, but it's growing monetarily, right? He is fabulously rich. And that seems to be the measure, right? Um, so I think perhaps that's kind of the stand-in here. I'm just, I'm just sort of thinking about what does it imply? I'm, I'm, I'm comparing and contrasting the praise that Glowen chooses to give to the human king compared to this description, which is presumably drawn, uh, for, you know, sort of summarized from Glowen's words praising Dan and his works and his kingdom. Just doing some comparison and contrast there. Um, and I think that we can perhaps see some different values there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. His resources are growing even if his borders aren't. Um, I like that. Uh, Ambrosius Aureliana says the Dwarven Kingdom is growing deeper roots rather than wider borders. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, hopefully they don't, you know, uh, their roots don't go down too greedily and too deep, but uh, but yes, that does seem to be the direction the dwarves move there. Um, yeah, interesting. Tony's wondering how much the difference in lifespan between dwarves and men has to do with it. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder. It's certainly a different kind of perspective. And Dan's age, right? He's more than 250 now, has reached the point where it is significant even for a dwarf, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Matt is saying, uh, to loop it back to the concern that Glowen expresses about, you know, uh, for now, right? Um, we have been, we have so far been fortunate. Um, Dan is in the position of Hrothgar just before the arrival of Grendel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there are definitely some parallels there. Definitely. Um, yeah. Um, cool. Mm, this is me resisting the temptation to try to do another slide. I think maybe two is enough for now. Um, anything else I want to touch on here before we shift to do the field trip? Okay, yeah, one last, one sentence we didn't touch on so much. Uh, Frodo's politeness, right? He's a very polite listener. He's not following, right? It's not to say he's not enjoying it, but he's not following it. Um, and, uh, he makes no, no attempt to change the subject. Um, but he soon got rather lost among the strange names of people and places that he had never heard of before. When he first sees Glowen, right, he is surprised and delighted because he has heard of him, right? As we, as we said, it's like a, you know, it's a character out of Bilbo's story suddenly right there that he's talking to, he's sitting next to at table, right? Um, but, um, uh, when Glowen is telling these stories, he's not just, what we get is Frodo not focusing on the familiar names, right? Tell me more about Esgaroth. Tell me about, you know, is there a master now? Do they still trade with the elves? Um, you know, there's a lot of kinds of questions that he might be interested in because 
of what he's familiar with from uh, hearing Bilbo's stories. Instead, it's all about the strangeness of it. Um, the people in pla- these are people in places he's never heard of. Um, and of course, one of the things that we can hear from this is how dated Bilbo's stories were. If Bilbo had stayed more on top of the news, presumably he would have told Frodo, and Frodo would know more of this, right? So that's interesting itself, how Bilbo um, doesn't seem to have updated his stories much. He did, you know, make it back to the Lonely Mountain, but not until later. So he seems to know not very much, right? Bilbo seems to have known not very much before he left the Shire about what had happened um, out uh, out around Erebor, right? Um, so that's uh, so that's another thing. Um, uh, yeah, and Tony, I agree. It highlights how little the dwarves came to visit Bilbo, too. Yeah, there, there's... Um, um, yeah. Now, Mike, I agree that there's a lot of things that Bilbo knows about that Frodo never got wind of, but like, yes and no, right? And how many of those things that we know, other things that we know that Bilbo is familiar with that Frodo doesn't know about include, for instance, Aragorn, right? But I'm not convinced that Bilbo has known him since, like, before he left the Shire, right? Um, I would guess that Bilbo's acquaintance with Aragorn dates to the last 17 years. Um, You know, he could, in theory, have met him when he passed through Rivendell and the Hobbit, um, you know, back when little Estelle was only 12, but um, that's 12, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, But, you know, that... We have no evidence of that. Um, But, um... Yeah... So, yeah, I, I, I don't... I'm trying to think of definite examples that we have of things that we know Bilbo knew about that he didn't convey to Frodo, and I can't... Um, I can't think of any clear examples of that. Yeah, and I agree. Bilbo, uh, Matt Bilbo has been much more interested in the history of the elves than he has been with the contemporary stories of the dwarves. Yeah, 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 definitely. Gildor, no. Um, Bil- uh, Frodo knows that Bilbo knew elves and sometimes visited them, right? Frodo has never been personally introduced to Gildor, but I wonder if that's Bilbo's fault, right? Or... How often has he seen Gildor, right? Gildor says, we said farewell to him on this spot. In other words, they met Bilbo while he was leaving the Shire, right? Uh, You know, maybe the night after his party. Um, But that doesn't necessarily mean that he was kind of withholding that from Frodo, right? He might not have met Gildor for decades before that. Um, Elves being elves, right? Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, Crownless, that's a wonderful question. We know there are dwarves, right? There are dwarves that help out with Bilbo's party. We know that there are dwarves who travel with him, right? Who are there, waiting to go with him. Um, Who were they? Who could they have been? I mean, they must have been dwarves who came with the caravan of goods that he ordered from Dale, right? Um, Yeah, 
Yeah, but um, um, yeah. Mike, I agree that Frodo doesn't know much about Bree, but yeah, how much does Bilbo know? When was the last time Bilbo was at Bree? Um, it's not like Frodo doesn't know it's there, right? He does know it's there. Mary knows it's there. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah, I, um, yeah. Aragorn is surprised at the translation from the Elvish that only Sam knows. I doubt Frodo is surprised by it in the sense of never having heard it before. It might be surprised that Sam can rattle it off by heart, right? Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't think... And remember, of course, Aragorn's response to that was, uh, you know, Mary asks him, do you know any more of that old lay that Sam spoke of? And he says, yes, yeah, so does Frodo, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think that they... Um, there's little evidence of Bilbo having traveled much since he came back around the Shire, some, and has seen elves. Um, both Sam and Frodo are clear on that. Even if they've never been introduced to Gildor. But, okay. All right. Okay, we're going to stop there. We'll stop there after two slides. And thank you guys. I know you were concerned about my health if we did three slides two weeks in a row. Right. Um, there might be injuries. So uh, let's... Uh, regroup. Thanks, everybody, for joining us tonight. I'll say uh, farewell to folks on the talent and on uh, uh, the Twitch. No, not Twitch. Twitter. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, so say goodbye to those. So we'll switch over to just using the Twitch channel and Discord, of course, um, down to two instead of four broadcast areas. Uh, and we'll continue our field trip. So uh, good night to most of the people. All right. Good okay. evening, everybody. Hey there. Good evening. Okay. So, back to Kellendam. We were... Yeah. We were just about to head north from there, weren't we? Uh, we pretty much looked at Dwayland. Yes. Um, were we going to go up towards Thrassi's Lodge or stick Yeah, I think we're going to carry on to heading north there. Yep. All right. We have uh, we have a good deal more archaeo gaming to do in Arid Luin. <laughs> Is that the official term for it? That's totally the official term for it. It's like one of my words of the year. <laughs> archaeo game. It. Now it makes me think, you know, it's like I'm now I gotta look at Pokemon now that with all my new found knowledge of, you know, discovering ancient cultures and stuff. That's right. That's right. Yes, no, I am always very interested by my son's Pokemon lectures. Uh, Pokemon, yeah, that takes me back. 
Pokemon really Yellow. So did, did you play yeah, Pokemon I, Yellow? I, um, when I was a kid, Red and Blue had just come out when I was in high school. You could okay. only get Pokemon Yellow if you downloaded the bootleg in Japanese, uncut, onto your uh, desktop. Okay. And uh, so my brother and I had no knowledge. This is before Google Translate or any of this nonsense. So right. we were just, we had no clue what we were doing. And we didn't even know how to look up half of the characters, let alone kanji. Right, right. Um, so basically we were just trying to push everything and keep track of what everything did. Like we, you know, battle menu, there's four options. It's like, okay, pick the one on the top, right? Okay, this takes us to some sort of menu. Do something. Okay, that did nothing. Write down that that does nothing. Okay. <laughs> Right. So, that's that sort of nonsense. So, it, but it was a lot of fun. That was a that was a fun summer trying to figure out as far as we can go. And of course, later I got Pokemon Yellow for a Mother's Day present a couple of years ago. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. But yeah, no Kanto and Indigo League were that was that was my scene for a while. It was so fun. Cool. And uh, if you if you like if if you're any '90s kids out there. Um, I did enjoy Detective Pikachu a lot because there was a lot of shout outs to the 90s kids in that one. Right, right. Yeah. Including Brian Reynolds himself, I think, was a 90s kid. Yes, yes. Yeah, I. Yeah, Matthias got so much more out of that film than my wife and I. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. They, they mentioned the Mewtwo incident on Kanto, what was it, 20 years ago, and I'm shaking my kids going, ah, ah! It's the first movie. It's like, shut up, mom. Shut up. We're trying to watch. <laughs> yep. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I was like, just, I, I see, I, I feel very confident had I been born, like even just a little bit later, I would have been really into Pokemon. I kind of missed Pokemon, barely missed Pokemon. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was, I was at the, Golden Age were Dragon Ball Z, Sailor Moon, and and Pokemon were like the the holy trinity of Japanese culture that right. was available mainstream at the time. Right. Yep. Yep. No, I. Uh, um, yes. Yeah. No, we kind of missed it. I All think right. If, so I do, if we do Japan moot, I might have to take. Matthias with me because between like you know being a black belt in karate and like a Pokemon master Japan is like you know you know the motherland to Matthias he may want to come with me we'll see um, alright so oh, hang on a second we rode through Duolin before why are there uh, urns by this gazebo? Which gazebo? Where are sorry, you at? We just, sorry, I just threw on the brakes there. I apologize. Oh, oh yeah. Perspective. Oh, the gazebo on the low road? Yeah. We didn't take the, the low road. road. We, we went through Duelon before. Uh, That's right. Okay. This is an interesting gazebo in that it has furniture at all, which is Yeah, uncommon. this looks like it's supposed to be a council right here. This does. In fact, this almost looks like it was designed to be like the movie Council of Elrond. Not quite, but reminiscent. Yeah. I mean, they're way the too whole... far away for this to be a card table, so... Yeah, and they got these urns here, these little... The I don't urns, think I've seen urns yeah. quite like these before. 
ferns are really unusual. It's green um, and it's got a leaf motif. With the urn? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, leaf and vine. Looks like almost like oak leaves, but no, not really. I don't know, they're weird. Like Something ivy? with eight Something petals or yeah. eight leaves on top. Yeah. Um Interesting. Yeah, I just urns. I'm trying to where have we seen urns? Have we ever seen an elvish urn before? No. What do they put They're in They're not urns? even in the housing modules. And they're only at the steps. Yeah. Like flanking the steps. It's weird. It almost looks like it's some kind of service. Like this is something you would use before stepping into the gateway or something. Stepping in under the gazebo. Yeah. Check your shoes in at the urn or something. I don't know. <laughs> Umbrella stand, maybe? And, and Yeah. Foot oil. Yeah. Right, feed Spot for treatments. horses, druids fire, possibly. Right, I could see that. Could be, but it would be... A horse couldn't drink from that. They couldn't get their muzzle down that. No, but if you put... If you, if you, if you had some kind of food stuff Trough. that you could dip in and feed the horse with, like put in a nose bag or something like that. I guess. Where would you tie him up, though? No idea. I mean, you, they have all those in Bree. They're pretty straightforward. Yeah. Yeah, no, they could be holding water, I guess. I don't know how you would water your horse from there. Maybe you don't water your horse. Maybe you water yourself. Maybe it's not water. Maybe it's wine. Maybe it's booze. I don't know. Well, we are near a vineyard. Yeah. A lot of talk about that. We found the stills, Corey. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe it's spirits. It's hooch. Elven hooch. Hooch. <laughs> I just like the juxtaposition of those two words. Elvish. Elven hooch? Yeah, that's a pretty good phrase. <laughs> Elven hooch. I like Anyone that. who's looking for your indie beer label, there you go. Yeah, exactly. Elven that hooch. Is. That'd be good. That'd be, almost be a good band name, but... Uh, uh, Elven hooch. That, that's, uh, that's a, like, new millennial bluegrass vaporwave <laughs> kind of thing. Yes. Yes. Lo-fi uh, bluegrass. <laughs> uh, Matthias, as he was, as was amply evident from his stream this afternoon, uh, just discovered the Trogdor the Burninator video earlier today. Yes. Like, that was like his morning, was discovering the That was the, the first time the he saw it? Yes, he'd never seen wow. it before. Wow. I, um, I had a t-shirt and then later the baby onesie when that came out, because that was just in time for my son to be born. Yes. <laughs> yes. So he he just discovered that this morning. Um, so uh, he was uh, he was he was very excited about this, and and so he 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 was he suggested earlier that like afternoon I I picked him up from karate after his stream, and he was like, you know, Consummate V would make a really good band name, and I was like, actually, Consummate yeah, V yeah, yeah. would be a really good band name. That, no, that was my first gamer tag was Saint Trogdor. There you go. There you go. 
Okay, anyway, I'm, we're digressing now. I was just yes. struck by the urns, we're, we're struck by a furnished food. gazebo at all, frankly. We've seen so many elvish gazebos, and I don't I think know. I've ever seen a furnished one. Um, Why do elves hate walls? That's what I want to know. See, that does seem to be a thing, right? They don't like walls. And notice how the lower stories of things all tend to be open like that, right? Don't fence me in is the elven motto. Yeah, well, I mean... The kind of, you know, openness to the surroundings makes sense, especially, I mean, you'll remember how many gazebos we saw on cliff sides and the pinnacles of mountains and things like that, um, where they could not have been too much fun to build. Um, uh-huh. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Matt, are those urns similar to the ones that lore masters investigate? I don't remember... I don't think that they, the Loremaster urns looked like that. No, I do remember with an early baby Loremaster I had was definitely thinking, is this some sort of new level? Like, have I got to the, you know, the second tier or something? But it was, it was to no avail. So, yeah. And then there was nothing quite like it in the rest of the game. Yeah. Um, oh, uh, they mostly uh, broke the beat up. fish uh, was just asking where we are. So we are at the junction of the road north of Duoland, uh going down to what's it called? Kela, wherever it is. We're just, yeah, we're just south of Thrasi's Lodge and we're just uphill from the Dwarvish uh, harbor down there. So the first thing that we see, of course, are these pillars, right? Both mm-hmm. the little street marker pillars and the larger tower pillars looking over things, there. Yeah. yeah. And these are totally dwarvish in oh, like yeah. every way, right? I mean, we've got the no triangles, mistake. we've got the knots, we've got the metal and stonework. Yeah, the rivets. The towers, of course, very strongly reminiscent of the dwarvish markers we've seen elsewhere down in the south. Um, yep, very art deco. Yeah, look at the diamond-shaped windows. The arches, the angled arches down there. Yeah, yeah. Um, Definitely of Dwarvish construction. So this would seem to be, this point, looking at the map now here for a second, would seem to be the boundary, right? Um, So the question then to me becomes... Are we going to see any other Elvish things? And if so, what does that suggest of the history? Because also, uh, dating these posts, they're old. They're not newly built. You can see from the way the rust has worn down onto, you know, has run down onto the stonework. Yeah, that was a good detail with the rust. I like that. Yeah, that was very, that was very well thought out. I agree. Um, You can kind of see from the harbor, too. We got some of those uh, Malachite or Jade towers going on in the harbor as well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. from up here so we we might consider that being some sort of point of uh from uh, significant of a certain time period right that we should make right. note of and these towers okay no i thought that was a crack but it's a tree branch in front there's they're uh, like yeah. pitted in scarred and we've got that same rust effect here they're old, these... but they're not decrepit, these towers. Yeah, we got these, these sort of gemstones up here in the corner of each uh, each corner here. These little plum bob looking deals. Oh. Right. 
possibly some sort of stone, like hematite, yeah. onyx, something dark. Yeah, it looks like stone, and purely decorative as far as I can see. Yes. Yeah, interesting. So, thinking about dwarvish history to the extent that we know it, and you guys might have to help me because my memory of the... Uh, um, uh, ooh, hey, excellent. Lilith has just posted a picture of the urns that the lore masters study, and they're definitely Arnorian urns. Um, they are... Um, they're reddish, and they have Numenorean stars on them. And they're busted up, too. And they're busted up, yeah. Okay, awesome. Thank you, Lilith, for finding that. So, people have to remind me of the in-game history, especially with the Dower Hands and stuff. I don't remember all the dates of those things. We know that there were old... Um, old dwarf settlements, right? Um... Did we already explore in Forakel? I know I did that in Grifflet, but I think maybe that's what I'm remembering. I think I'm remembering exploring there in Grifflet. Yeah, we haven't been done Forakel yet on this particular okay. stream. Okay. Um, all right, then. So, thinking of what, uh, what was it, Zidoxigil or something? Or whatever yeah, that was I was thinking called. of the no, Dwarvish stuff up there. there's the clearly like the so, other one. Arid Lewin, right? This is the Blue Mountains. This is the, the, the bottom part of the Blue Mountains, which was the easternmost mountain range in Beleriand, right? And, of course, in the Blue Mountains in Beleriand are where the main dwarf kingdoms were back in the First Age. So the association of the Blue Mountains with the dwarves goes way, 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 way back, right? So, oh, yeah. um, therefore... Archaeologically speaking, right? Historically speaking, there are sort of a couple different, you know, sort of epochs of dwarf occupation of this region, which theoretically we could see. Now, the dwarf homelands, right, of the ancient days were much further north in the Blue Mountains than this. Um, however, in theory, we could we could find something in game which we could conclude to be a first age dwarvish place, right? Um, here in the Blue Mountains, so we could get ancient, ancient, ancient stuff, which is as old as Moria, as old as Khazad Dum. Uh-huh. Um, we also, of course, are gonna on the other end of the spectrum get very much newer um, stuff. Right. That is to say, the stuff that Thorin's people built in exile when they left Erebor, and then they wandered for a while, and then they ended up out here. Right. Um, so Thorin's Gate, obviously, uh, being the primary place of that. So we'll have some stuff built by the Longbeards quite recently. Right. Um, just in the last, what I'm forgetting the date now. Somebody find that. What's the date of the the destruction of Erebor when Smaug wrecks Erebor? How long has Smaug been in Erebor? It's been a while, but I can't remember exactly how long. Like 100, 150 years before the time of The Hobbit. Something like 200 years before the time of The Lord of the Rings? Or, uh, yeah. Before when we would be now in game. 
That's what I'm thinking, but I'd need somebody to check that for me. I don't remember it exactly. Uh, It'll be in the tale of years in Appendix B. Um, but anyhow, uh, so we've got reasons. It says TA-2770. 2770. Okay. Um, Third H. Sorry, TA. Okay. Yeah, so that was, yeah, 240 years ago. Yeah, not bad. Uh-huh. Um, okay, 240 years ago. So... Stuff that was made by Thorin's people within the last two centuries, basically. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's the Dower Hands stuff, right? So the Dower Hands would have built things. Um, well, what? Otherwise? Um, I don't remember the history. They've been around here for a while. Uh huh. Like I said, I'm not, I'm not uh, my, my, my memory of the history of the Dower Hands in game is a little bit less clear. I, I don't remember as much about the Dower Hands, but from what I could tell, what seems to happen is they seem to occupy important dwarven places rather than build them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So whether they put their own stamp on things or whether there is anything that specifically marks them as Dower Hand places, I, I'm not quite sure. So that's right. definitely something to take note of yeah, we'll have as to see. we look at the Dower Hand stuff out here. Agreed. So seeing, th- speaking of marking things, it's these tall spikes. And spikes they seem to be, as they don't seem to be towers in the sense that I don't think anyone can get, they seem to be just solid, right? They're sky needles or some yeah, kind nobody's, of... Yeah, nobody's, th- those aren't habitable. Those aren't hollow. They're solid straight through, it would seem. Um, well, th- they do have those uh, windows, those little diamond windows, but... Oh, yeah. It. I forgot about those. Because they're not on this side of the building. But yeah. they're, they're pretty low down, though, considering. Okay, so maybe that is enterable, in theory. I don't see any doors around the base, but that's not the there first time. There are other one of these no that do have doors. Okay. So. But yeah, Thr- uh, Thrasili, I was thinking the same thing, that um, they seem primarily designed not to be residences like the ones in... in uh, um, Kalundum seemed to be, but uh, or watchtowers as some of the other ones seem to be, but just boundary markers. Which would mean that that one there down to the south, up on the shoulder of the hill there that the road came around, would seem to mark the beginning of the dwarf terrain here. Um, it does sound like something that such a legal-oriented group of people as the doors. You know how many contracts and stuff like that. Right. That's definitely one of those. And we have put this marker here on this land to indicate. It's like those little sticks with the with the ribbons on them that we have out here in the country to delineate property lines. Right. Right. Yeah. Because see, just as these smaller versions mark the road, right, um, the larger ones like mark out the valley itself as if like, you know, this land contained within this valley. Oh, now we're obelisks. Belongs to us. Yeah, this is not, this is neither one, right? An obelisk on a platform. The bottom, the base of that looks similar to, not identical to, but similar to the larger towers up above. But then instead of the larger kind of steeple business up at the top where you just get a a spiky little obelisk 
Interesting. Have to see if this we see. This one's got almost like, like a bronze flower near the top or something. Yeah. Do you think that is specific, perhaps, to this town? Because I mean, the first thing I notice when I look, apart from the grass that's in my face, is that same, those same spikes in a couple places, three places that I can see from here, around the city, mm-hmm. right? Like it might just be in the harbor. Right. Like it might be. Um, like it might be a symbol like of a sea the city. Uh, I don't know. It does make me wonder what this green stone is. I can't think of many stones that are of this brilliant color that aren't, you know. Yeah, green and veined the, like that, yeah. Green and veins. I, um, it's almost like a barrel or like a... <laughs> it looks like the dyed quartz that you get at the... At the museums for the kids, you know. Right, right. Tell, yeah, tell them it's a geode or something. No, it's just quartz, and we dyed it different colors. But right. Supposedly, that skill wouldn't be. Yeah, it could. Quartz, I mean, it looks know. like a kind of marble, Catriona. I agree. Mm-hmm. Now, the walls of the city look much newer. Yeah, I, I think it's malachite too, Dime. Malachite or some kind of barrel. Barrel is an, is what we know as the elf stone. Right, that's interesting. No, I okay. gotta go to the Museum of Natural Natural History again and see if I can see something that looks like this. That's what me and my kids go for. We go for the rocks. What a dwarvish statue! That is a very dwarvish statue standing on. It, it's okay. So it's a dwarf, right? Yes. You can tell because he's short and squat and has a beard. Yes. But look at the richness of detail on the axe, right? I mean, it looks I, like... I, I think the, the axe is actually metal, unlike the stone behind yes, it. Yes, like exactly. I mean, it, it looks almost like the the dwarf figure behind it is like pro forma, right? Like, just put up to have the appropriate backdrop to this axe. Yeah, it's, it's like meant to hold it or something. It's a holder for yeah, a very not intricate even... axe. I want to see it from the side. Is it even attached? Is it free? Because it's got its hands sticking out. It's almost like did we did we, you know, hire separate it's, people it's to of, make the kind of resting. There's probably a pole connecting the top of it to right, the bottom exactly. of the statue. That's what I'm thinking too. Yeah, no, I think it's. I mean, again, I'm I'm not meaning this as a criticism. I think this is delightful. Actually, I think that this is. Shows um, priorities. Exactly. Priorities, right? Like, to represent another... Like, it's important, right, to show respect. And we have the, you know, the dwarf who is being commemorated here was probably a dwarf of great significance, but it's his axe that we really remember, right? Maybe um, it's a named axe. It's, it's almost certainly going to be a named axe, right? Um, <laughs> in fact, I wouldn't even be um, shocked to learn that this statue was of, like, you know, a, a named axe, essentially whose wielder was primarily famous for wielding that axe. You know what I mean? Or maybe had several wielders, and this is supposed to be just sort of representative like, of the family of, that of held it. Of one of them, yes, exactly, right. Exactly, yeah, or, or, or of the whole family. I could totally well, see Well, it looks that. like I'm seeing some more of these guys. More of these statues? These, uh, these statues with the axes. Let's get a look at those... 
Yeah, see, right over here, we got a lot, bunch oh, of these. Oh, yeah, nice. This is a great place to get some exploration deeds, by the way. <laughs> I think there's yeah. two, this whole area. Here we go, this one's called the Spile, Spire of Khaledul. Wait, Khaledul? where's this? Oh, this thing in the middle? Oh. Yes, yeah, thing in the middle. Okay, it's called the Spire. Oh, rubber banding. Wow. I, it does not want me getting up on that. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. The building is protecting itself. Oh, and there's wow. a dower hand. Yep. They're always so untidy. I know, they're, they, they, they just look dirty and, and dingy all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it makes me think of, you know, their, their, you know, Norse culture. There was a lot of self-respect in staying very clean and tidy and hygienic and combing your hair and using soap. Oh, my goodness, soap. Right, right. To the point where, you know, the Ang Angles were writing nasty letters about how much they hated these sissy Nordics. Right, right. And their weird bathing habits. <laughs> so, so dirty dwarves actually, you know... That would be really weird. It would be like they, they might have like taken an oath of filth or something. <laughs> yeah, I like Lilith's comment. Uh, the dwarves of the axes. The axes are upon you. I like that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, this is definitely an area that was protected maybe by a family that had this special axe and their family or something. Yeah. Oh, hey, wh where did the dower hand go? Did somebody kill him? Where did the dower... Oh, um, I think I shot a few there. Some of them were aggroing, but they'll be back any minute now. I'm looking for another one. Yeah, okay. Oh, here's uh, one right here at the foot of the spire. Don't kill him yet, guys. Don't kill him yet. Oh, did he reappear there? Yeah. Yeah, I'm on the what oh, wait, you call? I'm on here. the north side of the spire. Oh, right there he is. Yep. I see. Okay. So. Okay, so he the dower hands they all have beards kind of like this, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of shortish beards, but not long beard like sort of pit beards. fighter beards. Yeah. Longer hair, though. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's hair done into segments, which are sealed off by little bronze cuffs, probably. Right. right. Okay. Now, I was looking at that because I wanted to compare, assuming that that guy is fairly representative of the Dowerhand style. These dwarves are definitely long beards, the ones in the statues. Yes. Which once it it gives some cre credence to my theory that the Dowerhands occupy dwarven places; they don't create them. Right. Right. And given the this place, as I say, looks pretty new. Like all the corners are really sharp. We don't see any of that kind of wear or erosion here. Mm -hmm. Um. Anywhere in this place, so I'm thinking. 
that this harbor city was probably built by the Longbeards, by Thorin and company, or oh, yeah, by Thorin's people, the post-Arabord dwarves. That's definitely a mercantile place. It's be a great way to get back on your feet after losing a kingdom and a treasure. Well, exactly. When we look at the map again, the dwarf road that goes through the Shire and then out through Bree, uh, and then eventually out towards, ultimately in the generally Ereborean direction, um, comes across here, and we saw that we were just on the... We ended our field trip last time on the underside of that bridge. Mm -hmm. um, then it goes on up and ends at Thorin's Gate, but it also stops off here in Kelladul, right? It has this little side trip that we just went on, coming down to the river, uh, providing docks with which you could get up and down the River Loon, um, which could theoretically be handy, especially if you wanted to trade with the elves down by the Havens. Oh, yeah. Right? Especially if one of the best is famous for its wine. Exactly. So, yeah, it would make sense that they would build this if this hadn't been built before. So, if we... But, remember the spires and the posts. The, the spires and the posts looked older than this. Uh, you can see some of these spires, like this spire right here, looks older than the stonework yes, around true. it. I was just noticing that. You wonder if some maybe parts of this was uh, wood or old stone, and it was replaced, but they kept what they could. Well, you know, these this blue stone guy over here is much sharper and cleaner. Yes, yes, this stuff here. So yeah, I see the blue stone and the new stuff, and the green stone and the old stuff. Right, right. Yes. It's like. Is this bronze, or is this just carved stone over here? I think, okay, hey, Pontine says, The deed says, The ships which harbored at these docks once ferried goods along the western coast of Middle-earth to the White Mountains in the south. Now the dower hands... Okay, when? That's not very specific. Now the dower hands use them to barter with the dark land of Angmar to the north. Well, okay... Once ferried goods along the western coast of Middle-earth to the White Mountains in the south. Sure... Once when? Once in the last 200 years? Before the Dower yeah, Hands once took them over a, recently? Yeah, once is not That's a point. nebulous term. Kind of is. Because I agree. We can visually see, and this is a great example. I mean, here they are right next to each other right here, right? We can see visually the difference between this, as you say, the blue stone and the new stone, and the old stone and the green stone. So theory... Theory, the dwarves of Erebor, you know, the dwarves of the Lonely Mountain, you know, the displaced dwarves of the Lonely Mountain built this area. And they built these docks. But they, being respectful of the works of their fathers, of which these older marks were some, they kept them, right? They preserved them and imported them. Maybe there used to be... Did there used to be a city and they expanded it here? Perhaps? 
but they maybe, kept these or old maybe markers. these were maybe they were more like uh like ship's markers just to indicate where safe travel was right perhaps I could see if this was our this had a deep foundation you could definitely use that for us uh, to help with scaffolding for creating the dock right right well the, the other thing is is the greenstone native to here or in it ran out or did it come from somewhere else as opposed to the blue stone here why the change of different colors of stone well i mean just looking at the cliffs here right yeah i mean they don't call it the blue <laughs> yeah it does look a little bluish um oh so, uh, Aruran said, the deed text said, that this obelisk memorializes the founding of the port of Heladul in Thorin's time. Nailed it! Okay. Yeah. But the obelisk isn't necessarily built in Thorin's time. It could have been, again, raised there in commemoration. Like any, both, all of these obelisks. See, I still think that they're older. Um, it's also possible that they've just weathered differently. Because they were because they're made of different materials. Yeah, yeah, that's possible. It's possible. Well, then again, maybe that wasn't called Caladul when these green guys were here. Exactly, exactly. Nor nor do these even have to have been here. They could have moved them here. Um, you know, that is, they could have they could have brought them from somewhere else and and erected them here. Um. the other question is, where else do we see these spires with new architecture? Right. Well, we'll have to keep an eye out for that. I mean, obviously, this is something. The the, the mystery of the older uh, gray, green obelisks is certainly a mystery we'll need to be looking at as we continue to... <laughs> I see uh, what you did there. <laughs> to, to, ...to journey through this area. Um, but, um, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we will we will keep an eye on this as we move forward. Um, excellent beginning to our uh, exploration of the dwarf areas. From here, I'd like to kind of head north into Houth Lynn, just kind of continue moving geographically rather than thematically. See what's up there to the north as far along, so, so that we carry on moving along the river as far as we can, and then we'll head yep. over into the lowlands and down into Gondaman and south of Gondaman. Um, All right, M- Mission Ward Spire. Yeah, we'll head up towards the Ward Spire next time and see what we can find. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to explore the 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 rest of the arid Lewin should really have, one would think, a very rich archaeological history. So uh, I am I am keen to see what we find. Um, very nice. Okay, yeah, and Tawath, I will try to remember to look for Anuminus across the river when we get up to the Ward Spire. Definitely. All right. Meanwhile, it is getting late, and I should let everyone go to sleep. So thank you, everybody, for joining me again. Um, and I look forward to next week. Yeah, this, this is the time where I make that face where I'm trying to remember what I'm doing next week. Yes, I will be here next week. So I will see you guys next week. And next week, of course, is, a, uh, is an important week. Right next week is our 11st session uh, of oh exploring the Lord of the Rings. So that'll be pretty cool. Anyway. Thanks, everybody. See you guys next week. Bye now. Good night, everyone. 
Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.